0: this is a spoiler
1: you can't listen to this and not
0: have spoilers
2: Let me give you the, the summary. Okay, we're reading Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. I assume everybody is has mentally survived this. I quite enjoyed that, so I'm not... Yes, <laughs> good. I'm glad.
0: Spiritually survived it?
2: Uh, well, good question. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, let me give the summary. And then I wanted to say a couple of things, which will probably go on and on and on. But anyway, so we know that the story takes place during one day when Miss Stalloway leaves in the morning to go get flowers for a party. She's throwing that evening and the story ends at that party. And we know that the journey from that point of going to get flowers... To the finish is far from smooth, not because the plot is convoluted, but because of the way Virginia Woolf dissects each of the characters is really beyond deep. It's multidimensional. The main character, Clarissa Dalloway, is married to a member of Parliament in London, Richard Dalloway. is known for her high-class, well-connected parties. And in fact, the prime minister attends the party that evening that she's going to be having. She is herself very upscale, stylish, upper-crusty, and I'm just going to say this right now, because I just happened to see this about her, that she said that Virginia Woolf, because she had written the character Clarissa in a number of other stories prior to the book, Mrs. Dalloway. And she had problems with the character, actually, writing the character, because she, she said Clarissa was too stiff, too glittering, and too tinsely, which I love because that's very Virginia Woolf. That description. But anyway, so she's gone to get these flowers. She's going to have this party. And as we all know, the plot isn't really a plot that comes out of the internal lives of various characters. It plays with time. It goes back and forth. It's very nonlinear. But anyway... Throughout the journey from getting the flowers, getting back to home and start of the party, Ms. Dalloway, Clarissa reminisces about her marrying Richard Dalloway, a nice though interesting guy, versus her first and more fiery suitor, Peter Walsh. The second storyline follows Septimus Smith, a shell-shocked war veteran, walking on the street with his wife. He's hearing voices and feeling very despondent. His best friend in the war was killed. We know, I think his name was Evan. A car backfiring paralyzes him and he starts a free fall into gloom and crippling sadness. Turning back to Clarissa, and again, I'm jumping a little bit because so much goes on in every given moment. Turning back to Clarissa, who while mending a green dress to wear at her party, her old flame Peter Walsh shows up from India where he has been living and has met a woman he hopes to marry, though she is currently married to someone else and he's back in London to arrange a divorce for her. Peter and Clarissa talk about their current lives, though their thoughts are in their past lives. After Clarissa's daughter, Kim, comes in and greets Peter, then he leaves and ends up on a walk in the park where he comes across Septimus and his wife, Lucretia, fighting, which Peter notices at a distance, thinking they're just like any couple arguing, though they are in fact fighting about Septimus's desire to commit suicide. Richard Dalloway, meanwhile, is at lunch with Lady Bruton, who had not invited Clarissa to lunch, which Clarissa took as a huge insult. Richard realizes at this lunch that he just wants to go home and tell Clarissa he loves her, except he does not end up telling her that. Clarissa comes across her daughter Kim's tutor, who Clarissa hates because she is sure the tutor is stealing her daughter away, while the tutor hates Clarissa for her refined quality and her money. Later at the party, several ghosts from the past show up, Peter Walsh and Sally Seaton, who Clarissa had a flirtation with years ago and a kiss when they were very young. The prime minister, I said, as I said, a number of Downing Street dignitaries and Sir William and Lady Bradshaw, who arrived late because one of Sir William's patients has committed suicide. The patient is Septimus. And this is I think the most explicit connection that we see between the two interweaving characters and their stories, where the announcement is made at Clarissa's party at the end of the book that Dr. Bradshaw's patient Septimus has committed suicide by jumping out of a window when the doctors hired aides had come to take Septimus to a mental hospital. The party ends with Peter questioning to himself why he's suddenly feeling such an intense emotional excitement and it's because clarissa is approaching him from across the room i don't know you guys remember this like when we used to talk about how i had this thing about last lines yeah the last line in this he says i will come said peter but he sat on for a moment what is this terror what is this ecstasy he thought to himself what is it that fills me with extraordinary excitement it is clarissa he said for there she was And that is a great line. I love that line. And apparently it is an important line that Wolf used to indicate this quality about Clarissa, the character. I'm not quite sure, but this intensity about her that had this effect on other people for there she was. Okay, so I wanted to quote some parts of this just to get things going it's really at the beginning and it's really hard for me i know we talk about we're going to ultimately have favorite lines and i kept thinking to myself what's going to be my favorite line even if it's two lines and literally i think i have highlighted something on every page of this book and so it's going to be kind of hard to center what it is actually that is my favorite line but anyway so i'm going to quote a few things at the beginning that begins or opens or gives you a sense of Wolf's writing. This is her at the beginning out getting flowers. She had a perpetual sense as she watched the taxi cabs of being out, out, far out to sea and alone. She always had the feeling that it was very, very dangerous to live every one day. Now, that's another thing. Death is a big part of this. Ending of life is a big part of this. Time, obviously, is a huge part of this. I mean, I'm sure you all know that This is a stream-of-consciousness type of writing. It wasn't based on, but it was inspired, I think, by Ulysses, even though I don't think she really liked the book. I don't even think she really liked Ulysses. But it is that kind of modernist type of writing at that time. So yeah, death and ending life is a big part of it. Another thing that jumps out, is that Septimus dies by jumping out a window. And Virginia Woolf attempted to do that one time in her life. And that's very tied, as I understand it, because I believe they think she had bipolar mental illness because, you know, she ultimately did kill herself. But I think that that's tied into it, that she herself intentionally wrote that into it. But anyway, let me read this next quote. This is at the beginning, too. But everyone remembered what she loved was this here now in front of her, the fat lady in the cab. Did it matter then, she asked herself, walking towards Bond Street, did it matter that she must inevitably see something? All this must go on without her. Did she resent it? Or did it not become consoling to believe that death ended absolutely, but that somehow in the streets of London, on the ebb and flow of things here, there, she survived, Peter survived, lived in each other, she being part, she was positive of the trees at home, Of the house there, ugly, rambling, all to bits and pieces as it was, part of people she had never met, being laid out like a mist between the people she knew best, who lifted her on the branches as she had seen the trees lift the mist, but it spread ever so far her life herself. But what was she dreaming as she looked into Hatchard's shop window? What was she trying to recover? What image of white dawn in the country, as she read in the book spread open, fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. This late age of world's experience had bred in them all, all men and women, a well of tears, tears and sorrows, courage and endurance, a perfect and upright and stoical bearing. Again, that's at the beginning, and she's walking along, obviously. I think that's also the beginning of opening us all to this stream of consciousness, very profoundly emotional, non-linear type of writing. Her writing is like its own reality. And in order to read her, to have an enjoyable experience, I feel, you have to... You remember when you you go to the beach and you're out playing in the waves and stuff and suddenly you get caught in a wave? I mean, maybe when you are a kid or I don't know now, (laughs) but... Really, what you're supposed to do is just roll with the wave. Just let the wave take you, and then you'll be okay. But if you fight the wave, you could die. I mean, you could suffer serious problems. That's kind of the way I see reading Virginia Woolf. Don't fight it.
1: (laughs) That was a good summary, too. And I think it really helps in this because, and it's funny you mentioned Ulysses, because that whole in a day, moving between the consciousnesses, And that's one of the things I wanted to hit out was exactly what had happened, because sometimes it's unclear, like the first reading.
2: Yeah, it definitely takes more than one reading, unfortunately. I mean, not unfortunately, but, you know, depending on who you are and where you come from. But you can't approach Virginia Woolf linearly. You just can't. Literally, you have to just lie down and just let it hit you. And just you know, hope that you pick something up, you know. But anyway, yeah. go ahead.
1: Well, no, I mean, I just thought it was interesting. I mean, this going back and forth and all, I think it ties in maybe with the author too. But I mean, Septimus seems to be the counterpoint of that bipolarism, you know, compared to Miss Dalloway. And so you've got this one person who wants to you know enjoy life, what there is, and and the other one who you know ceases to see it anymore. And you said that she did that she had an issue with the tensely Miss Dalloway. I feel like these other characters in her world were spoils to that, that maybe it allowed something like a, kind of like one of the Dostoevsky's we read where, you know, you just get such a glut of other characters. It's really those stories that make up what's going on. And I think that Septimus's story is so sad and, I, and I'm just angry at Dr. Holmes for coming in and inflicting himself. Bradshaw, right? And even Bradshaw, I mean, he seemed to be a step above, but then you hear Septimus say, I must be isolated? Like, who are you to must me? I'm a free man, and how do you know what? You know, the other guy thought he knew what, too, by the way. And then they have this tender moment, him and his wife, and that's the exact thing that's going to be. Taken away from him, presumably, by isolation in the country. And so you see something like that and the prime ministers and the way of life as she's leading it. Also not to mention that Septimus saw his best friend go down in front of him in war and constantly is worried that everything is gonna disappear. So it makes his reality Dalloway and Septimus see reality in the same way sometimes, you know, they get caught up in in a moment
2: i read somewhere that they think that they're doubles that there's a connection i mean granted their life experiences are very different but at least externally but that there's something
3: good. doubles are opposites in a way i mean story. Well, uh, uh, he came from a humble background he left left a note on his desk and went to london i think it says there's been a you know a million young men like smith that have been swallowed up by london went to be a poet and then of course did his duty to country by volunteering for the war of course, the tragic events with Evans is that he felt stoic about it. He felt that when it actually happened, he did not shed a tear. It did not affect him. And what was it when he married Lucretia and he realized he felt without love Then he realized that he couldn't feel? But he was always a sort of antithesis, I feel, because he read Shakespeare. He thought deeply. He was he had talent versus, you know, Miss. Dalloways or Clarissa's penchant for reading—it seemed like shallow biographies and not thinking too deeply, but really loving life and taking every moment in.
0: So, is Septimus more like? I mean, there's an age difference, right? So, there's something in the theme of the book about being in your fifties and looking back on your on your thirties, uh, right? And so, there's this kind of back and forth between when they were young, um, with Peter and Sally and Richard. And then, to me, that juxtaposed with Septimus, and it made me wonder, for instance, is Septimus more like the young Clarissa, or is he more like the young
1: Sally? I thought about Sally Seton more than I thought about Clarissa. Yeah. Really? I mean, she's a fascinating character, too. Though it's interesting how she seemed to be, you know, um, enjoyably tamed in life with, you know, domestication and family versus being like a wild child.
0: Um, yes, but I, but the reason I thought, yeah, I agree. I mean, that's a, that's another thing to talk about. You know, the, the juxtaposition between where they end up in life versus where you might have thought they ended up in life. There's something going on for Wolf in that. But the reason I thought of Sally was because of this kind of artistic vibrancy there. And, you know, in those moments... In the book, where you get something like a third person, it, the, the whole point of view structure of it is very demanding. Yeah, demanding is a good way to describe it. And I like the idea that you said of you just kind of have to lie down and just sort of submit yourself to it. It's demanding in a way that she regularly has close-up first person of many different characters so on the face of it you feel like it violates all kinds of things about normal writing which is that you would have at least one consistent point of view or if you make a change you don't do it in the middle of a paragraph
2: (laughs) i know i know Um, and that's that's kind of shocking (laughs) yeah
0: there are also times where you feel like there's there's a genuine narrator that you feel right. you realize that it's all told from the third person, even if there's many times where it's close close first person. And in those times, I feel like even though there's an, there's an understanding of Missus Dalloway, that the author doesn't really like her.
3: I totally got that. That at some points a sort of third person value judgment shone through the narrative for sure. I. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, that there's an understanding, but there is a judgment of it. It isn't that Tinsley aspect. I had never heard that. I didn't read anything about it. I didn't know, for instance, that Clarissa Dalloway had shown up in other stories. by. Yeah,
2: Virginia.
0: earlier. But earlier. it made sense to me that she had an awkward relationship with her character. <laughs> it felt that way. And if anything, I'm brought back to the Sally Seton character and that relationship they have earlier on or in the past and whether or not h- how to understand Septimus I and mean, maybe I'm wrong about it maybe that there's a different kind of connection because Clarissa is also the one who is sort of worldly about art and is very interested in art and stuff like that so maybe mm-hmm. that's closer to Septimus
3: just to fill in Sally's backstory a little because i yeah. think it's important is that the kiss was mentioned and i think clarissa mentioned it was the most exquisite moment of her life i'm quoting that and also she came from very humble beginnings and accused this uptight character hugh kissing her or you know we clearly say sexually assaulting her yeah and clarissa didn't believe her because you know hugh couldn't do such a thing to such a
2: person as sally seaton who came from nothing
0: <laughs> yes
2: Yeah, no, I can see that. Definitely. That's very weird in this, particularly in today's environment of the sexual assault insanity. But that Sally Seton is fascinating because, I mean, a lot of Virginia Woolf's, when we write, we always write from what we know, which is ourselves and our lives. Even, I believe, if we write nonfiction, we're still writing from ourselves. And obviously, you know, we know that Virginia Woolf was bisexual, essentially, even though she was married and had children, she was bisexual. And so, and she also had mental illness. And so we think about septimus and sally seaton as part of that
1: i think that's certainly true there's this other side of it though which this is a great read by the way okay i mean it, just the world that it like put you in it kind of did feel like its own universe and i was re-humbled about being able to take on another perspective hey, uh, what do you mean for her to basically write out a male's thoughts as well as i've you know, thought of them myself, or uh-huh. to go into many different people across age and gender and, and all that in class uh-huh. to dig into these people and to go, this is whenever it really skims the surface in the first person perspective, flying high third person that moves around. I mean, whenever it got into each person's thoughts, I mean, she had a class jealousy with, what is it, Kilman? going on and then she also had clarissa's counter perspective seeing it the other way you know and peter's incontinence so it was just great to see that that's the other side of what i was trying to uh just my point is that she was able to put herself in other people's shoes which is also i think the great work of fiction and to really walk in them and live in them and show you that there's something there that someone is capable sure they borrow from people they meet all the time
2: what I think is interesting is she did this in a stream of consciousness way. I get this feeling or this sense that she was writing without breathing. Like it just, she started and she didn't stop. That's the sense I get from the movement of the, of the book. And to be able to like dip it, in, go inside of these, each of these characters so intensely and beautifully like she does at that speed my, this is my feel. It's like, wow, that's really incredible. The way she could do that.
0: I have a kind of fussy question on that point. So you know there are no chapters in the book, but there are these sort of relieving double spaces, uh, (laughs) where where, you can breathe. (laughs) Where yeah, and and they are sort of a change of scene. But I got used to them at the beginning, where I was sort of notice, oh, there's 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 a double space coming up, (laughs) and I I could take a breath, I could I kind of hold on until I get there. After, I don't know, the first third of the book, there isn't another one for, right. I don't know, a hundred pages. Yeah. <laughs> and I was so, <laughs> I was, I was kind of irritated.
2: <laughs> you didn't have that break.
3: I totally agree with you. Cause it's so hard also to like planning how much you could read or like, I'm just going to read until here. And then, yeah,
0: <laughs> you have to go yeah, on and on, and, and on. The other thing that happens in that section of the book is early on, those double spaces amounted to almost changing of voices and changing of interior life. But in that middle section, there's no break, sort of typographically, that indicates that you've moved from from one interior one you know, like close interior experience to another except for if you go and reread the paragraph and go from one paragraph to the other it's just ever so gentle of a, a switch but it's there i'm thinking from like going from talking about septimus to going back to i mean that plot line to going back to course, i have the heart harcourt one you know, relatively new one. It's page one hundred thirty nine. This is one of the only sections where they're focus she's focused on Elizabeth, who is Clarissa's daughter. And she's out and is gone away and then decides to get on the omnibus i assume that's a bus
2: (laughs) it is it's a a bus 1920
0: or whatever it was yeah
2: nineteen twenty-five.
0: so the paragraph she's walking along the strand and she says i'll just read the end of the paragraph it says fixed though they seemed at their posts at rest in perfect unanimity unanimity wow nothing could be fresher freer more sensitive superficially than the snow white or gold kindled surface to change to go to dismantle the solemn assemblage was immediately possible and in spite of the grave fixity the accumulated robustness and solidity now they struck light to the earth now darkness calmly and competently elizabeth dalloway mounted the westminster omnibus Going and coming, beckoning, signaling, so the light and shadow, which now made the wall gray, now the bananas bright yellow, now made the strand gray, somehow made the omnibuses bright yellow, seemed to Septimus Warren Smith lying on the sofa in the sitting room. Right. So that is literally the transition from one scene on one entire part of the city. (laughs) to a whole other plot. That's the transition.
3: The transitions are incredibly interesting because I think at one point they walk past each other on the street and when he finally does commit suicide, I think it switches to Clarissa's perspective with the sound of the ambulance going by yes it does yeah there's a lot of interesting transitions i kept thinking about how it could
2: be an interesting movie if someone had the skill to do it but did they did. Want- no i didn't watch it i didn't have time but i want to i want to watch it i don't know that was from 1998 right? yeah what was who was in it again i can't remember her name um, but with yeah the, I was was no 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 that was through hours no, uh, this- our hours is with nicole kidman and right.
0: and meryl streep right and but i'm pretty sure the one in 97 that's called mrs dalloway is actually vanessa redgrave
2: right vanessa redgrave right that's what right. i can remember yeah i mean i have to see it i want to see it did you see it i did not
0: but i read a couple of reviews who said that it was remarkable how faithful of a rendition of the oh, book is really yeah,
2: That's good, because I was afraid thinking about it, okay, how faithful could they be? Because as I say, like when you were talking about Dylan about the breaks and You know, obviously talking about the rhythm and how it's affecting you emotionally as well as physically. (laughs) I was thinking the problem is that we naturally, because of the way we've been trained and educated in this country, and is that we look at it linearly from a linear perspective. We just come to anything like that. Was it
0: Cesare who mentioned the the kind of cinematic quality of it, what it would look like? Or maybe it was Nathan. I think that a movie might actually capture it in some effective way that's maybe harder almost in a book because it is so cinematic that there's a way in which she's reaching for multiple senses at once. And you could have at least in a movie you could have things like sounds happening at the same time with the visual and the direction and uh and through the the activity of cuts and transitions yeah no i don't
2: i don't disagree with with that but except even when you have something like that yeah we by nature it's i think it's in our nature because all right we're going to get into like really weird thing here but because life has a beginning and an end and we all perceive it in a linear way, even though it's not, okay? I can see on a film, and we've all seen these films probably at some point, where they play with time and the linear aspect to it, but you're always looking for that little, even, you know, and I I agree that uh, cinematically, this could be, this story could be more easily pervade than in a book, but we all still will look for that line, that beginning and that end, and how you get there. We're always looking for that and the thing is much of what she writes is that it's not there i mean it's there but it's not there i mean we have mrs dalloway at the beginning buying flowers going out to buy flowers for a party she's having at the end of this story and we go there but when we get there we get to the end we have a beginning we get to the end but it's like we don't get there and we, we're always searching for that straight line and we don't get there in a straight line and i think that's there's something
1: about this that's at work with like nonlinearity in the novel and Not just as like a style, but like as this from perspective of age, looking back at things in the past and being able to take a different kind of a stock with age. There's this line that I liked about it. The thing that you gain is ability to kind of have an experience and move it around and turn it in the light of your of your experience and really enjoy it a little bit more. And all the times that Septimus and Dalloway have, whenever they get caught up with the sights and sounds of London, you know, that's a kind of like a temporality, you know, they're moving attention from one bit to the next. And um, I just think that it's a certain kind of not even storytelling. Like I think it's one of the points of the book. You know, it's like a meditation.
3: I guess the linearity is necessary for a narrative. But I think what the book does is with its focus on multiple consciousnesses, it kind of shows you the network of different people living different lives. And even though, so we have these different stories, Clarissa Septimus's, Sally Seton's, we sort of see it through their own eyes. We see how the same period of time was experienced by three different people in completely different ways.
0: I want to ask a question about Septimus, which is, why is he in there? Why is that plot in there at all? In fact, I mean, I know that there are points of intersection, right, in terms of the plot, in terms of the day that are there, the touch, and maybe that's the, the, the thread to try to figure out how they connect. But on the face of it, I don't get it.
2: Well, that's an actually a very good question. But again, all right, first of all, I've read that she wrote this book in diary form initially. So if you think about that, it's very personal. But when we think about why she did write in Septimus or why in anything, I don't know how reflective it was. I know that she drew on her mental illness in writing about Septimus or writing Septimus, like she drew on her bisexuality in terms of writing about Sally Seton. I've heard that that there is a connection between Clarissa and Septimus in that they somehow either are, I mean, I use the word phrase doubles. I've heard, I've seen that, but that they are either part of, Same person, opposite sides of or being, or opposite sides of the same being, or something, because Septimus killed himself jumping out a window, which I mentioned Virginia Woolf had attempted to do that as well. But I don't think that's the only reason why she discussed it. This does take place in post World War One London, but again, if you look at the difference between it, you know, Septimus being the the veteran, and think of the colors. And the qualities that are part of his experience and his dynamic versus Clarissa, which is very, as we mentioned, tensely and gaudy and upper-class stuff, is a distinct difference. But I don't know. To be honest, I don't know if Virginia Woolf was thinking. Notes for her here that says, agree with me or not, lust, passion, personality,
3: ideas, reform, Plato, Marxism, marriage is catastrophe. But she turns into a um yeah, a kid. mother. Five kids. So she kind of subsumes her passion and knowledge of the world into a very safe kind of activity. Whereas Clarissa, Miss Dalloway, I think Olies is afraid and never actually partakes in the knowledge of the world. She reads her shallow biographies. I think at one point she says she can never remember the difference between Armenians and Albanians. I guess this is a time when the Armenian genocide is going on. Right. And intellectually, she seems capable, but unwilling. And that's the
1: loose connection I've seen between the three. Yeah, no, I I mean, I really think that this is is on the the right path. I mean, I think that this is a matter of like discourse in a way, because it was early on. And before she busts into the flower shop very early on, she talks about the monster at the roots of her life and worries that everything is a vanity of egoism and self-love, I think. And she you know throws all that off and then at the very end on uh, this is a 186 i mean this is just the explicit connection here going back to the party fear no more the heat of the sun she must go back to them she felt somehow very like him the young man who had killed himself she felt glad that he had done it thrown it away the clock was striking and then just a little bit earlier you know she talks about how it's her punishment to see sink and disappear a man, a woman, people basically to step off into the darkness and uh, to be left there. So I think that she's holding down her burden in her own way and was so hurt whenever Peter Walsh called her, a uh, you're going to be a great hostess because she was like, screw you. This is my offering of life. So if you don't like it, don't show up. And had this issue with again, Miss Kilman who saw her as just all money and air and yet clarissa really wanted to um you know uh, connect in a way but also felt devastated so i mean i think that they're all dealing with like existential anxiety and that's a connection
2: i don't disagree dylan that bringing up or writing septimus in was not an accident i do think it was not an accident i think that she may have been looking toward. And I'm trying to find this quote and I'm digging through this. She may have been looking to examine that societal differences, that social differences, extreme social differences, and also to examine his incredible pain and suffering which struggle, which she herself virginia wolf was going through as well mm-hmm. but i don't see what the problem i mean do you have a problem with the fact that it's there other than you don't know exactly why it's there because it kind of like whenever you do create anything say it a painting or a sculpture or writing or whatever you do it helps to have the other side or other multi perspectives on in whatever you're doing
0: you okay. know i don't have a problem with it i'm more or less trying to understand it because how is the novel bigger besides the number of words by having that storyline in there? How is it how do we learn more about Clarissa? How do we learn more about Mrs. Dalloway for instance? She's you know whatever well, here- it's worth it's it's titled Mrs. Dalloway not it's not a Smith, right?
3: Didn't uh, Clarissa at the end of the party when she finds out that well, I don't think she knows Septimus by name, but she finds out that someone would kill themselves. She thinks that that was a wise choice or like a good choice. She says something to that effect. Yeah, that's what I just choice.
2: quoted.
1: Yeah. That, um, yeah. She
3: felt glad that he had done it. I could never connect that as well. I think it's because she wanted to do it. It's tough because she loves life so much, it seems. Who says?
2: Video. Where do you get this? She,
1: no, she loves life. Yeah, I never really got get- This is the other thing. Yeah, yeah I, 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 so we're hitting on something here. This is good because I think that Dalloway is also not – that's how other people see Miss Dalloway, but that's not how she lives in her first-person life. Like she is terrified of everything just like coming – down you know she is uh, some of her offerings uh, you know for people like uh, they they seem hollow but for her it's a great deal you know she is uh, worried about again disaster like right at the very beginning and so i think that it like adds a counterpoint to what her story could be if she just like as a person um in this universe. First of all, that scene where Septimus threw himself out of the window was like the most heartfelt moment I had reading it. I mean, my heart broke for his wife and yep. it was just a horror that it also didn't seem to have to happen. It was kind of like Kafka's uh, The Trial, the society of men were the danger, not life. It was like, what do they, capital T, want with me? And right. that dread around town. I mean, that I think it's this, I don't know if it, it's not postmodern or whatever, but it's this kind of thing that I think Miss Dalloway was tapping into too, that everything was constantly moving and going like a rolling carnival in London and life just seemed to be happening. And this being overwhelmed with life, I think is a part of what the story is dealing with in a, not a, I mean, I don't know what the word is, but I mean, this is a bustling city in the, you know, the 20th century. So, there's something similar going on here to being a part of, you know, like they have the empire history and they've got, you know, civilization and they've got all of their, you know, um, learning, but they also saw a war and there is death on people's minds. And I think that uh, septima shows how dangerous, um, this world can be. And Dalloway also senses it. I mean, doesn't she read about like, um, the people in the papers, and that really bothers her that she should know about people dying in fires and things like that. So she's also got a great deal of, burden on
2: her also not to mention that maybe she thinks she made the wrong decision with her life i would just want to follow up on that i mean cesari where do you get the sense that she was so happy and loved life
3: i was looking for a line and i couldn't find it i thought i had something highlighted i thought there was a passage in the book where she pretty much goes about and describes how just the scene is lovely and just the fact that things are out there and alive and real is it's great,
1: death is the you know, end and beauty of it all. I mean, you know, there's something else that I think is essential to like her philosophy because, um, Ms. An atheist, but there's this crucial bit uh, I'll find it in a little bit. But paraphrasing, it's something like if there was going to be the bad in the world anyway, and it was all of us against it, it it's better that we come together and bail each other out as best we can and have goodness for goodness' sake. And that is actually a a force of will that she has some measure of control over in a chaotic world, tying it into what we're talking about with her, you know, like the appearance of maybe frippery or, you know, um, decadence even it's actually not that it's a it's a bit more open or a spiritual thing it's an act of so it was something like that you know by being a lady it was an act of rebellion in a world of chaos and evil essentially to be able to still hold your head up high i guess was some kind of achievement and something worth doing and i just think that that's maybe human secular atheist uh morality something there
2: yeah and I mean I think back to the Septimus thing that Dylan was bringing up is I mean to make a simplistic sort of analysis of it but you know really that's who Clarissa is
0: pause say more about what do you mean by that
2: meaning that and you see this in the quality in the the language of the story that that wolf is using I got a sense throughout it all that Clarissa was ah she was like the glossy cover, you know, or when you oiling down your wood table, you know that gloss. That, oh, that lacquer! That lacquer, yeah. She that Clarissa was the lacquer, but Septimus is the wood. What makes up the wood, you know, of the table, and that's the sense I got is that she was kind of like what you see, but Septimus is what is. And that really, like I mentioned that, Virginia Wolf said that Clarissa was a very difficult character to write and to work with because, like I said, she was very tinsely and whatever. And she was based on a friend of Virginia Woolf's, actually. But I mean, when we think about Septimus being here, why he's here, and again, and we say, okay, it wasn't, wasn't an accident. This was her way or Virginia Woolf's way of saying, look, I can get very simplistic here, but this is what is, Clarissa is not what is
1: if she is maybe a, uh, a channel or um, like a, a mediator for those around her that maybe she doesn't have a,
2: um, you know, if you think about it, think about this, this scene, the time and the place that this book is taking is occurring, you know, it's post-World War one London and we're seeing a big, par- a big part of it is the parliament and the upper crusty, you know, government, people and these beautiful, you know, parties that are being thrown all the time, and Clarissa is known for throwing these parties all the time, and whereas Septimus is not the one who throws these parties, he's not the one who attends these parties. Again, I don't want to get simplistic about it, but because Virginia Woolf is far from that, and trying to understand why he's there and what he brings to this story and why Virginia used him or created him or designed him, I guess I'm thinking that when I was reading Clarissa through this, I got a very f- sense of fakeness of, you know, this woman is empty. I think
3: you're right that thematically Septimus is certainly timely in that it was called Shellshock back then. Mm -hmm. Which was a new phenomenon, which I guess we described as post traumatic stress disorder. Right. But the connection to Clarissa, which is what I've been trying to formulate in my mind, I don't know if it would be correct for me to say that they both care about appearances, but in different ways. I already mentioned that Septimus thought that this, you know, this human nature was on him and it had sentenced him to death. And Clarissa has this line that I'll just read here. How much she wanted it, that people should look pleased as she came in. Clarissa thought and turned and walked back towards Bond Street, annoyed, because it was silly to have other reasons for doing things. Much rather would she have been one of those people like Richard, who did things for themselves. Whereas, she thought, waiting to cross, half the time, she did things not simply, not for themselves, but to make people think this or that. Perfect idiocy, she knew. So I think... I really resonate with that line in more ways than one, but she thought waiting to cross half the time, she did things not simply for themselves, but to make people think this or that, perfect idiocy she knew. To give a real-life example, I'm terrible at directions, and sometimes when I realize I'm walking in the wrong direction, I pick up my cell phone, pretend someone's calling me to make it seem that I should be turning back. (laughs) I have to see a psychiatrist about this, but (laughs) (laughs) but somehow it's important that people know I'm not just clueless and walking in the wrong direction.
0: When you say that about appearances, I think immediately of Septimus being proud of the fact that after his dear friend is killed just before Armistice, before the last shells fall. Was and it right before? Yeah. It's right. before. I guess it
2: was. I guess I thought it was right after.
0: What I have to look up is whether they knew that the war was over and he got killed sort of, after they knew the war was over but the fighting hadn't completely ended i don't remember that part but that he was proud of the fact that he was stoic about it about that event and that it until it turned out it began to dawn on him as being something bad when he realized he just wasn't feeling at all and that seemed to be sort of the beginning of turning genuinely into a breakdown for him is that the kind of awareness of presentation that you're thinking about? Well, I hadn't done on me that way, but it, it seems
3: convincing the way you put it. And I'm thinking of the line where he was the first to volunteer for the war. He went into the world of Shakespeare and poems of hope, and he developed a manliness. So it seems that like he kind of went into the war to develop an image of himself, an mm-hmm. appearance of himself that was mm-hmm. thrust upon him. And he had so deeply I'm not sure what the word is, so deeply taking that image in that he was faking so hard at presenting himself
1: as such a person that he actually lost his essential humanity and not being able to feel for his friend. There's two things here. So I wanna I'll get to this in just a second. There's another way that I just um realized Clarissa and Septimus may be more thematically connected than I realized at first. But I mean, just going on that, I mean, Septimus comes out and loses his identity, right? He doesn't even speak to his wife and doesn't want to be addressed and is detached versus a society woman in Clarissa. So that counterbalance just occurred to me. I wanted to read this bit on 77. This is for Clarissa. I'm not sure who the voice is here, but this is someone's imagination of her. It might be the narrator's. This is the skew Clarissa the other way. We've talked about her being you know, uh, worried about other viewpoints, but this is another Possibly, she said to herself, as we are a doomed race chained to a sinking ship, as the whole thing is a bad joke, let us at any rate do our part. Mitigate the sufferings of our fellow prisoners. Decorate the dungeon with flowers and air cushions. Be as decent as we possibly can. Those ruffians, the gods, shan't have it all their own way. Her notion being that the gods who never lost a chance of hurting, thwarting, and spoiling human lives were seriously put out if, all the same, you behaved Behaved
2: like like a lady.
1: Yeah. That phase came directly after Sylvia's death, that horrible affair. Now, this is something I forgot. Sylvia, her sister, to see your own sister killed by a falling tree... Before your very eyes, a girl on the verge of life, the most gifted of them, Clarissa always said, was enough to turn one bitter. Later, she wasn't so positive, perhaps. She thought there were no gods. No one was to blame. And so she evolved this atheist religion of doing good for the sake of goodness. That's a tougher nails version of um, life and experience than you know some party-throwing uh, housewife. So I didn't realize, I, just, I had that line circled, I had skipped over that she saw her sister killed in front of her, which right. the thing I wanted to connect with Septimus.
2: Look at the following line, and of course, she enjoyed life immensely. I mean, again, obviously, it was her nature to enjoy, though goodness only knows she had her reserves. It was a mere sketch, he often felt. That even he, after all these years, could make up Clarissa anyhow, there was no bitterness in her. I mean, this may have been part of what Cesari went into Cesari when he read it, read that you know said, "Wait, but she loved life so much, right. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure where I got that, but
3: it's well, I not mean, pieced together in my head. But it was
2: there. It was there, though. It was there. It said right here. I mean, I'm following on your, your quote there, um, Nathan. But anyhow, there was no bitterness in her, none, in her, none of that sense of moral virtue, which is so repulsive in good women. It's a moral virtue, which is so repulsive in good women. She enjoyed practically everything. If you walk with her in Hyde Park, now it was a bed of tulips, now a child in a perambulator, now some absurd little drama she made up on the spur of the moment. Very likely she would have talked to those to those lovers. She had thought them unhappy. She had a sense of comedy that was really exquisite. Yeah, but she needed people, just just to finish that right there. I think
1: <laughs> you know, and Septimus is, you know, uh, completely withdrawn and wants to turn away from the whole affair oh. of people. Yeah, we should read that whole sentence.
0: She had a sense of comedy that was really exquisite, but she needed people, always people, to get out. With the inevitable result that she fritted her time away, lunching, dining, giving these incessant parties of hers, talking nonsense, saying things she didn't mean, blunting the edge of her mind, losing her discrimination. There she would sit at the head of a table, taking infinite pains with some old buffer who might be useful to Dalloway. They knew the most appealing bores in Europe, or in or in came Elizabeth, and everything must give way to her.
1: It's going into the Elizabeth. I mean, it's part of the book. It's like you just can't put it down at some points, and it doesn't let you, really. Yeah, no matter how bad you have to go to the bathroom, you
2: have to, <laughs> you have to keep reading. We're but, I hint hint. Yeah, no, no hinted. That gives you a sense a sense of her, but in that I see obviously she's aware she had a sense of comedy that was exquisite that indicates a sense of I don't know, the horror of life. Can
3: you explain her can you explain her desirability as a character, or do you think that's actually only felt by Peter? who clearly had that moment of his life, you know, it was a, clearly one of the biggest moments of his life, and Sally at one point,
2: and Richard, of course. Well, I don't even know if Richard really loves her. <laughs> I really don't. I, I think he loves well, her he's daughter. a very minor character, right? It, essentially.
3: I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. But, but I thought the scene where he uh, attempted to say, I love you, uh, he couldn't but I thought it was somewhat endearing and touching where they both understood each
1: other. Yeah. Mind you though, that was spurred by jealousy from Peter beforehand. So uh, he found out whenever he went to the meeting with the woman who wanted him to write a letter to the times and Peter was back in town, then felt threatened. His hackles got up. He wanted to confess his love to to, you know, his wife and then um, bought her some flowers and wanted to make a gesture and she got it. But yeah, notably he didn't He didn't say the words. He just seems
0: like the classic example of English reserve that is actually English uh, lack of emotion, lack of connection with one's emotions. He doesn't understand himself in that respect. He doesn't compute. That's what it seemed like to me.
3: Also making the connection of Septimus is that I think he said something. Well, Sally didn't like him. And he said something about one should never read Shakespeare. And of course, Septimus
1: was a bit of a Shakespeare scholar. That's funny. That happened conversely at the party Hutton and somebody else. He was a scholar on Milton. Yep. Oh. Interesting. I mean, Septimus's death did feel like the most central thing. And I know that it's titch- the book is Miss Dalloway, but I really feel like she was <clears throat> like a cipher for a bunch of other characters to have their moment. She might have been the nexus that, you know, gathered everybody and, you know, was, was that kind of a point, but um, yeah, maybe she couldn't write the story of a suicide through that perspective alone or around that only. I don't know. I mean, it, it's not useful to conjecture there, but I mean,
2: Well, I mean, you mean that Wolf couldn't write the story around,
1: And how are you going to tell the story of someone who ceases to be given the way that you want to write something or whatever, you know,
2: maybe you need someone to see it, you know, there to be a a witness for that story or something. That's just a side. This is considered a a modernist masterpiece, this book. And it also has been considered that this is where Virginia Woolf found her voice in this writing, in this book. I think that what you're saying, Nathan, about how she couldn't write, about suicide, that maybe that's what she wanted to write about, but that it was done through the construction of this character, Dalloway? Is that what you're saying?
1: I'm not saying that that's her sole function, but I mean, I think that's where what you were talking about earlier, you know, the self kind of, you know, bleeds onto the page or what fascinates you. And, And you can imagine if you're dealing with it, you see those contradictions or You know, if you have another author, they might have an atheist character and a believing character kind of going back and forth. And that's the author working out their atheism. You know what I mean? Even if they might stick the landing on the non-atheist, you know, the believer, you might be like, well, you're really pushing yourself though, aren't you? Because, you know, you've really invested in this other belief and, you know, you're trying things out and exploring it. I mean, it's definitely clear that all of these characters are emotionally in touch not with their own reality, but just the narration is in touch with their emotions. I mean, it's so personal and intimate and just there's that depth there in all of them. And so given that sensitivity, I mean, not to say like to to be that sensitive, of course you kill yourself or anything, but if a sensitivity does drive you to suicide and I mean, and we know that's Wolf's story, I can see how she's pulling in many different characters and dealing with the problem of being alive, I suppose, through a bunch of different ways. Now, maybe you can take that on the face and kind of roll with it. Or maybe you give up on being a crazy wild girl like uh, Sally and you settle down and have five kids. Or maybe you're fine with Richard and like that's your life and you just want to be able to breathe in a space that you've created and you're just holding down your little bit of existence like Miss Dalloway. Or maybe you can't see a uh, point in anything at all any longer, and then you know you get your septimus to the point where they're actually terrified of the thing the other person embraces. So again, there's this counterpoint going on there to away and I'm not saying that any of this is structured to be uh, like this intentionally. We're talking about it in that way, but uh, then it
2: was structured intentionally.
1: Yeah, to have these people as counterpoints that, or that she thought about them as such. You know, um, I right, think that, really. you know, that's just uh, critical talk. But at the same time, these characters are both there. We seem to be centered on Miss Dalloway. And yet we don't really go through her. I don't know. We don't seem to be going into the story as much as we do as other people's stories are more interesting. Let's put it that way, or have more Mm -hmm. of a draw. Or I mean, I felt the closest with Septim that was the end of that story. And I kind of, you know, didn't really care if Peter and her got together at the end, but whatever.
3: Peter is one character we haven't talked about much. And I think it's interesting to expound on Clarissa's personality. I'm not sure if it was clear who broke up of who, but there was a long drawn out scene where Peter realized that she was no longer in love with
1: him and uh Yeah, it's when it's Richard. when Richard
2: Dalloway entered the picture.
1: Mm-hmm. They were at the dinner party and he could tell <laughs> Peter could tell that she was falling for Richard just because they were kind of becoming everyone was
3: yeah everyone was making fun of richard and then clarissa would get snappy when sally would make her jokes about uh,
1: oh that was the breaking point though yeah so after they met a long time ago they were poking fun of richard and uh yeah and then dalloway was like hey cut it out but she continually remembers that she had to break up with
3: peter otherwise i think the line is they would both be ruined and That's never explored why they would be ruined or what that would mean. It was too intense. Well, and I think
1: Peter was like a flimsy kind of a guy. Like he was following his, you know, heart and whim and, you know, got into one disastrous relationship after another. Whereas Richard was more stable or something like that.
3: The class thing is in the background at all times too, right? Peter is not
1: from wealth. Well, wasn't it though that Dalloway is also below whatever her name was before dalloway clarissa so clarissa i think i was reading a little in the forward that maybe dalloway was lower than her like she kind of married down
2: to dalloway from her original position
1: yeah that she was know. wealthier than he was When it, he was the son of a minor i think was that dalloway or was that sally's husband who was a self-made yeah.
0: sally's husband was self-made and they're very very wealthy But through sort of that merchant, she's like Silicon Valley wealthy, right? As opposed to... uh...
3: Yeah, precisely. There is a big class element here. I think, I don't know if it's my own position as a low-class person, <laughs> which got me upset at Miss Kilman's description, which made her seem so one-sided to me. But that's the only character that really bothered me in the book, who just seemed like a resentful, spiteful person due
1: to her position, due to her low-class position. Yeah, I felt sympathy for Kilman, because I, I mean, I could understand her having nothing and seeing through that.
2: She seems so
1: negative, though. Uh, Whenever you go into it, she never had anybody that gave her attention in a good way. No one ever thought she was attractive. You know, she was kind of doomed.
0: Both those things are happening right in that character is the juxtaposition of class, but also the juxtaposition of social existence for a woman that Clarissa is beautiful. And that's part of the deal is part of her success in her role as a socialite is that she's beautiful, and both those things are
1: source of animosity for Kilman. I thought that she was just well-presented, but that she wasn't beautiful, that she wasn't a particular beauty, but that she did have a presence and a kind of a glitter about her. You're right, actually. That's exactly how she's described. She's... Even so, the class is what makes that more stark. I mean, it's not that, you know, uh, Dalloway was like frumpier or or whatever, but um, it was clear that Kilman was supposed to be ugly, that she had no form to speak of. Um, Dalloway's not that cursed or whatever, but also had money from the beginning.
2: I just saw something here about back to the Septimus thing, bounce us around too much, but where Virginia Woolf said that, you know, originally Clarissa was going to die in this book and apparently Woolf abandoned the idea of doing that and she said she created a double for, this is where I read double, for Clarissa named Septimus Smith a shell-shocked Worf, World War One veteran suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, blah, blah, blah. Inventing Septimus, Wolf said, changed the direction of the book. Wolf wrote, I animate here a study of insanity and suicide, the world seen by the sane and the insane side by side. I mean, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, but it does I mean- to me too. But it's interesting that Dylan, that really jumped out at you. That Why is Septimus Smith here? I mean, he jumped out at you. He jumped out at all of us. But clearly, it changed the direction of the book. That's interesting.
0: One of the things that stands out about Septimus is, even though he's there, and he changes the direction of the book. That is, putting aside writing it, imagining taking that whole plot line out of it would change the book a great deal. But it's funny because there's only the most... Let's call it incidental times where those lines interweave with one another right in terms mm-hmm. of the plot at least yeah so the connection is is something different than that the lives actually affect one another the only time that we get that kind of connection is at the end which we've mentioned already where Clarissa having heard about this, young man having committed suicide reflect reflects on that
1: yeah and i think that also it introduced uh, death at her party which was an interesting thing so i don't know about manners and class of the society at the time but having gone to parties you know in my own life it wouldn't be a faux pas a death. but you know here it was like talking about the bathroom at the dinner table or something for at the time, maybe that was if you knew about manners, maybe that was a big enough of an event at a party to kind of be more of a ripple than we might read it now um, at a distance. Still, the point is, is that these threads are not directly intertwined with one another. It didn't radically through. And I don't think it's about Miss Dalloway. You know, I think that's what might be misleading about this novel. Is Clarissa's
0: irritation at that faux pas Is that like her aunt's aghastness at Sally's running through the upper hallway naked to go
1: get her her bath sponge? I mean, except in one way, so you have Clarissa admired Sally for it. And in in the other, if you pivot around too, she also maybe admired Septimus for being able to do it, Uh, to just go.
3: Doubling down on what I've already said, in a sense that also tying in her not wanting to leave Sally... And her not wanting to hear but death is Clarissa having an idea of how the world works and doesn't want new knowledge to intrude on that versus Septimus, of course, having that knowledge forced upon him by going to the war.
2: Yeah, she's able to maintain a protective layer. But I mean, again, though, I'd like to kind of set up that I think Dalloway
1: is darker than we're giving her credit for. Oh, she is. I agree. Totally. I mean, I'm just saying like, uh, just having just in the past 30 minutes, rediscovering that her sister died in front of her, I think adds a significant wrinkle element, to, you know, um, but even so, yeah, I mean, they're on different in being a man is, you know, maybe different in the times or something like that. And being know, a woman? You know, yeah, then I mean, you know, you have these guys that can't talk about their emotions and you have a doctor and Dr. Holmes who says, oh, no, yeah, I know you went to war, but everything's fine with you. Everything checks out. And sure, there's it may not, not be malevolence, but just incompetence of medicine at the time. But even, I mean, Bradshaw, anyway, I'm not, uh, it just still seemed like, uh, insensitive or, and sure it's the times, but in those times it would have been harder to have something like that on your heart and live every day in a society without, you know, people looking at you or locking you up if you got startled, um, because you know, you'd been in
2: bombings. So yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. No, I definitely think that there's elements, but I do think about Virginia Woolf herself said how Clarissa was a very difficult character for her to write. And where maybe Septimus wasn't as difficult for her to write. Because Septimus, like I say, is Virginia Woolf.
1: I think something like that. Again, I think that she's the crack that we're seeing through. I don't think that she's um, really what the story is about. Oh, yeah.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely. When you say uh, Clarissa's darker and, and more complicated than perhaps we give her credit for, to me, it seems that her stream of conscience presented in the book is as we would think it is somewhat shallow but do you think that what is unspoken in a sense the scene which has never played out of her breakup with peter for instance that she had real reasons for not loving or for breaking up with peter and she just didn't love him but she hides behind the shallow veneer in order to go about her life i don't think she ever uh, i think peter tries to force her
1: to say something about richard and she never does right yeah there's she that moment at the up. fountain right where he's like tell me you need to tell me something you know, I got the impression that she wanted him to make a move and that Richard was making moves. And he was like, do you want to tell me that you love me? And she's like, why don't you tell me you love me? And until you can do that. But then it's interesting that Richard is having an issue with that in their marriage later on. And then Dalloway is also maybe one to swing back over to Peter, but that's mostly wanting to go into nostalgia And she realizes that, you know, she realizes this is, this is walking in, you know, old streams or whatever. And that's what feels good about it.
2: I don't know if this is right. The final scene, the terrible scene, which he believed had mattered more than anything in the whole of his life. It might be an exaggeration, but still, so it did seem now happened at three o'clock in the afternoon of a very hot day. It was a trifle that led up to it. Sally at lunch, seeing something about Dalloway and calling him. My name is Dalloway, whereupon Clarissa suddenly stiffened, colored in a way she had, and rapped out sharply. We've had enough of that feeble joke. That was all. But for him, it was if she had said, I'm only amusing myself with you. I've an understanding with Richard Dalloway, speaking to Peter Walsh. He had not slept for nights. "'It's got to be finished one way or the other,' he said to himself. "'He sent a note to her by Sally, asking her to meet him by the fountain at three. "'Something very important has happened,' he scribbled at the end of it. "'The fountain was in the middle of a little shrubbery far from the house "'with shrubs and trees all around it. "'There she came, even before the time, and they stood with the fountain between them, "'the spout. It was broken, dribbling water incessantly. "'How sights fix themselves upon the mind.' For example, the vivid green moss. She did not move. Tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. He kept on saying. He felt as if his forehead would burst. She seemed contracted, petrified. She did not move. Tell me the truth, he repeated. When suddenly that old man Brightcox popped his head in carrying the times, stared at them, gaped, and went away. They neither of them moved. Tell me the truth, he repeated. He felt that he was grinding against something physically hard. She was unyielding. She was like iron, like flint, rigid up the backbone. And when she said, it's no use, it's no use, this is the end. After he had spoken for hours, it seemed with the tears running down his cheeks, it was as if she had hit him in the face. She turned, she left him, she went away. Clarissa, he cried, Clarissa, but she never came back. It was over. He went away that night. He never saw her again. See, I feel like this is the end. She
3: knows something subconsciously that we never have access to in her stream of conscious. Clarissa? Yeah, Clarissa doesn't break up with Dalloway, or sorry, break up with Peter simply because she's shallow and Dalloway has more money, for instance. I think she has a deeper, well, I don't want to say inner mental life because we're not presented with that, but she she knows things that are not presented in this sketch that we're presented
0: with. One of the things that comes up, at least I feel like it's more than one time, is she has these wonderful moments with Peter, but he also is very
1: critical of her and she doesn't like it. She finds him kind of demeaning to her. The hostess was the first, was the one that stood out from the very beginning, find you know, that. you're, you're going to make an excellent hostess. And that was a slam. And then there was something else that he did also. He's also,
0: you know, looking at her and even in his own inner close up inner life, he's thinking about how he can't believe she's taken, you know, she's so obsessed with this sort of frippery, this nonsense. And so even in his own thoughts, it comes across as him not really respecting her.
2: For they might be parted for hundreds of years, she and Peter. She never wrote a letter, and his were dry sticks, but suddenly it would come over her. If he were with me now, what would he say? Some days, some sights, bringing him back to her calmly without the old bitterness, which perhaps was the reward of having cared for people. They came back in the middle of St. James Park on a fine Monday morning. Indeed, they did. But Peter, however beautiful the day might be, and the trees and the grass and the little girl in pink, Peter never saw a thing of all that. He would put on his spectacles, if she told him to, he would look. It was the state of the world that interested him. Wagner, Pope's poetry, people's characters eternally, and the defects of her own soul. How he scolded her. How they argued. She would marry a prime minister and stand on the top of the staircase, the perfect hostess, he called her. She'd cried over it in her bedroom. She had the makings of the perfect hostess, he said. The perfect hostess. He sees that
1: as a uh, uh, an insult, and yet she sees it as an act of kindness to be hosting. And I just think that's just a disconnect uh, that's important for, you know, like, you know, where she's coming from and what he can't see. Yeah, there's a thing at the end about how she understands
0: this is the way she gives to the world. Yeah.
1: I'm hoping this is connecting, and I, I think...
3: I want to say a line that I think will complicate Clarissa's character, and it's at the very end of the party. (laughs) She was still there moving about at the other end of the room. Why creeds and prayers and macintoshes? When, thought Clarissa, that's the miracle. That's the mystery. That old lady she meant, whom she could see going from chest of drawers to dressing table. She could still see her. And the supreme mystery, which Kilman might say she had solved, or Peter might say he had solved, but Clarissa didn't believe either of them had the ghost of an idea of solving, was simply this. Here was one room, they're another
1: did religion solve that or love that connects in with something else that um clarissa thought or said page eight uh, the cab's passing found it all absolutely absorbing and she would not say if, what that was the line right after what i just read uh, i am this i am uh-huh. that she says yeah. her only gift was knowing people almost by instinct her only gift knowing people by instinct so there's something to that you know she does have like an internal world
2: but it's her only gift fascinating
3: well you have convinced me she's a deeper character than i gave her credit for that's for sure
2: <laughs> <laughs> i'm still trying
1: to puzzle uh so, some of this out uh, just because it's so you know every i think that everything that we've l- like like laura your plot like all of that it's not in the reading exactly i mean it's very hard to draw right. all of these details in specific yeah and i'd like to get a you know. Maybe we can talk in a little bit about what Septimus's worldview was. Maybe it's just interesting because it's pessimistic. But um, I mean, I also, uh, but we also laid out Clarissa's, and I thought hers was really kind of brave in a moral way. It was, you know, do as much as you can for the people that are here. You know, alleviate what suffering there will be, um, and you know, good for goodness' sake. And I think that makes her a, a bit more uh, charming and stronger. And maybe if you know, I'm thinking about Virginia Woolf and what we've talked about and how she felt about this character if she had a kind of a tensely character before in Miss Dalloway and then really went into it here, I can see how this is the more complex version of someone who has nothing going on inside, Uh, or to say that she really gave her dimension also. And then the gloves feel like they really came off with Septimus.
2: I wonder if it was easier for her to write Septimus than it was. Oh, I think, yeah, I
1: think so. I mean, just knowing where her own mind went that way. Mm -hmm. it's kind of like we talked about in the sunset limited with, you know, McCarthy. I mean, one clue to his vision of it is that, you know, of who goes on black and white side, it's that he didn't kill himself, the author, at least not yet. So it looks like he might, Uh, it seems as if he might be metaphysically sided with one of his characters that way. Now, looking back, we can Mm -hmm. see that Wolf may have a, you know, an intimacy with Septimus. Um, but even so Clarissa's got a lot going on. Um, it you know reminds me of um, anyway uh, there was another character that we talked about another time it was a nun who basically was atheistic in, in her good naturedness uh, she was just doing trying to be a little bit of bright light in a world of mostly darkness and it shattered this other guy's view thinking of her as like a higher than thou you know um, almighty person rather she was actually in the ground doing the work that you know that he wasn't even doing. Um, And so similar, I think Clarissa, while she looks like she's just flippant and um, materialistic, she's really got a heart and she's trying to connect to people, you know, even if she's in her own trappings and it does feel like she's, she's trapped. And I think that's, that's the kind of trying to get out of it. You know, like she also might want to run off with Peter to India or something or leave Richard maybe, but she
2: can't, why is it that she can't because she knows she can't. She can't,
1: I mean, I don't think she wants to, and this kind of goes to what Cesare was saying. Like, I'm not, I do think that we don't know we're missing something from her perspective. Like, why didn't she want to be with Peter? She said, I think she kind of lays it out at the end saying that like, we would have been a disaster together, you know, or like you are too indecisive or you're too by the seat of your pants to be a substantial husband or whatever, you know, maybe, maybe,
2: maybe the chaos that she lived through in watching her sister die she had to eliminate that chaos from the future of her life in yeah, marrying I mean, someone I like mean,
1: dalloway you to, to have stability whenever you don't you know um, have any or don't feel like you do you know um, well think about
2: women at that time you know early 20s in the 20s post-world war one putting virginia Woolf herself aside there were just certain things you didn't do and certain things you did do. Well,
1: going back to uh, white bread uh, or Whitbread. Yeah, right. you know, making the moves on him, and then no one believing her, you know, because he wouldn't do that, you know, like that's come on. Um, I mean, that's it's hard to imagine that society. And for me, being that gender,
3: I'm wondering, um, and I just thought of this after you said that line about uh, Miss Dalloway's only talent is uh, instinctively reading people, is that Peter Walsh portrayed himself as this great romantic and this deep thinker, right? I think he exoriated Miss Dalloway for her shallowness at several points. It ended up that his life, was he a divorcee or was he just trying to, He's trying to get somebody else divorced to marry him? Yeah. In his time in India, but as he takes the boat back to England, he's thinking about how happy he is that the woman that he's attempting to marry is not there. And he seems to be in an interminable flirt, right? He's walking through the streets and thinking about flirting with the, uh, the women on the benches. And at some point, he thinks to himself that like, a man of his age should not have to tell women that they're pretty, for instance. And it seems that he, she had him pegged as not genuine, <laughs> as fake in that sense that he couldn't hold up or keep up to the romantic notions or the notions that he had of himself.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that she sees something she doesn't like, And we might not get that explained, but she's got a beat on it. But then like, what is going on at the end where, I mean, first of all, he dashes in and surprises her and, you know, catches her off guard, but she really wants to make a connection. She's interrupted by Elizabeth because I feel like things really turn on this and we're left not knowing how the coin ends up on the table at the end, because she just is coming to meet him. Right. We don't know if they run off together. We don't know if it's a polite, whatever. And then they have a last moment and that's it and they go back to their lives we don't really know what, what are you expecting there with him being back or in that letter that she sent after him you know after they were uh, they were split apart it seemed like there was a moment i'm gonna have to go back and find it um with uh before elizabeth comes in like he was about to say something or she was about to say something and then they got cut off and she desperately wanted him to come back to the party
2: which party at the
1: end Yes. But but the first time Peter Walsh comes back, they meet in her house and they're talking and they're about to get into a more intimate conversation. And then Elizabeth, the daughter comes in and Peter dashes off and Galloway goes after him and says, make sure to come to the party. And then we know just in timeline runs back to her desk and writes a note that says something like it was heavenly to meet you. And I feel like there's something else in there, but like, I want to see you again. And he won't read the note again. He reads it once, but won't read it again. So like, he's not really willing to consider this possible opening up of the love affair, it seems. So it seems like maybe he wanted to put himself back into her orbit. And he says this clearly, or maybe the narration does, but she's in love with him now. Now it's that he's in love with him. And before it was that he was in love with her. And it seems like now he is not, yeah, he's talking about flirting with these other women. And he's also not really taking the prospect that he could just say yes. And they would leave together very seriously because it seems clear that she would go with him. So we're left at that expectation, right? It seems clear that she loves him and he goes to the party and kind of puts himself through it. So maybe we're to suppose, I, I, I don't know how much it's worth trying to figure out what happens afterwards. But we are left without knowing what happens. So I don't think it's important whether they rekindle a relationship or not. And we have a happy ending that doesn't seem to make much sense. And then, it, you know, the other way doesn't matter much either. But there's this expectation that we're kind of left on. And to me, it seems possible that she embraces life and goes with him. I, you know, I, I don't know. I, so so you're reading that last
0: line as, as she's walking towards him.
1: Yes yeah she's finally coming to him at the end of the party she said please both of y'all sally and peter you're my friends don't go after i get these other people in here that i don't really want to be with i'm going to come and hang out with you and the whole party they're kind of resentful and of having to wait and watch her talk to prime ministers decked out in gold and all these things that she feels they can see her i mean i'm sorry i'm just going through the story now you guys read it but yeah so there's this expectation that they have a meeting that they need to talk about something and the same thing with sally though she's kind of given up on sally and knows that that relationship is done but that they had something and they'd like to that she'd like to see her again um it doesn't really seem like there's anything left to act on there but with peter it seems really possible that she wants to be with him somehow have a love affair we don't know how that ends up and he wants that does he it seems like he, like the time has passed, and that no, he I, does not. I think he's deeply incontinent.
0: <laughs> he doesn't, yeah. doesn't, doesn't know. Doesn't know what he wants. I think he's also a narcissist. I think he, I think he wants to be wanted. So
3: yeah. By a scene uh, walking through public and spying women, and I think he imagines
1: himself asking them if they would like an ice, for instance. Oh yeah, that was a that was a part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God, that's so sad. He, but wants, yeah, he, he wants
0: daisy up. because daisy wants out of her unloving relationship with her military husband right she's 24 years old she's young and beautiful even though she has a couple of kids
1: he wants her because she wants she wants out of that life yeah and didn't he meet another girl on his way to india and that didn't work out and, and then there was this other relation so well, it's with this guy yeah, I mean, he, you know, he can't keep it together, but you know, <laughs> but I mean, you know, I, I'm not I'm not throwing stones, you know. No, I know. He's a <laughs> phony.
2: <laughs> There's this part I'm looking at right here. I don't know where, where it is in terms of page anything, but the one thing that sticks out, you know, the way that Virginia Woolf uses deals with time in this book, which we all know is just all over the place. But the one thing that jumps out at me is she brings in Big Ben a lot. Oh, yeah. Know? Yeah. and, and noon, I, noon, is, noon is right
0: at the center of the book. What? Noon? Big Ben strikes Noon. At the center page, of the book? On page, what's half of 196? 85, 86. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is in the middle of Dr. Holmes having uh, you know talked to, to Riza, and, and it's in that transition, actually. So you have Dr. Holmes... Looking ironically around the room, by all means, let them go to Harley Street if they had no confidence in him, said Dr. Holmes, looking not quite so kind. It was precisely twelve o'clock, twelve by Big Ben, whose stroke was wafted over the northern part of London, blent with that of other clocks, mixed in a thin ethereal way with the clouds and wisps of smoke, and died up there among the sea.
2: I'm about publishing stuff that had certain kinds of bad language in it questionable. Yeah. It took a
0: long, it took a long time to get that book published. Yeah. She, she said, never did any book so bore me.
2: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, yeah, exactly. She said like some things about Luke and it's shocking. I mean, didn't she do a, a, a lecture at, what was it? Cambridge or Yale somewhere. And she said that Ulysses was just like a a fucking waste or something. (laughs) It was amazing. But meanwhile, it is stated somewhere, or I read somewhere, that it kind of was inspired in a weird way. I think in the terms, uh, in terms of the structure or the way, the process of the technique of writing, maybe that's what was inspiring to her—that you know, the stream of consciousness stuff.
0: I just looked up this quote from her diaries. <laughs> it's just so awesome. She says uh, in her diary, she gave a, a withering assessment of the work as, a, as the work of a self-taught working man, egotistic, insistent, raw, striking, and ultimately nauseating. Yeah. When one can have cooked flesh, why have the raw... <laughs>
1: That's interesting. I, I circled this line here as uh, so this is a slam on somebody. I'm not he- sure whose voice this is, but um, one of those half educated, self educated men whose education is learnt from books barred from public libraries, read in the evening after the day's work, on the advice of well known authors consulted by letter.
2: Oh my God.
3: I, I don't want to get too far afield, but uh, just the thing between Joyce and Wolf always had a bit of a class element involved in it as well.
0: Is That, that Wolf, what? It always
3: had a what? Class element, is that Wolf was well-educated, came from a good family, and Joyce was a bit of an autodidact, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. You heard that in the quote itself, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
2: I'd like to think she was better than that, though. You know what I mean? One hopes. <laughs>
0: she could have had the sins of uh, you know a, a typical... Uh, Edu- educated rich educated elite
1: you know I realize we're coming up on uh the the two hours here, All so right, I'd right. like to maybe draw in any threads that we've got any um any like last lingering things that you know we just didn't get to but want to I mean I know we're leaving a lot on the table but um it's hard not to. Yeah, really. Do this you is... think um, Do you think Evans and Septimus
3: had a, a homosexual relationship?
2: Yes, I do. I absolutely think the bisexual. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I do. I definitely think, if not a relationship, definitely an, an attraction, because I think that that is something that was very important to Virginia Woolf, obviously. And you saw it with Sally Seton, and I think it was brought out with that with Evans and Septimus.
3: I was gonna probably read this for my last line, so I might as well read it now to, to get okay. some. Wait to if, if this is true or not because she does put it in very ambiguous terms but here it is septimus was one of the first to volunteer he went to france to save an england which consisted almost entirely of shakespeare's plays and miss isabel pole in a green dress walking in a the square there in the trenches trenches the change which mr brewer desired when he advised football was produced instantly he developed manliness he was promoted he drew the attention indeed the affection of his officer evans by name it was a case of two dogs playing on a hearth rug, one wearing a paper screw, snarling, snapping, giving a pinch now and then at the old dog's ear, and the other lying somnolent, blinking at the fire, raising a paw, turning and growling good-temperedly. So that end mm. part there is really, <laughs> really, uh, really ambiguous or metaphorical. Yeah, puppy love. Yeah, <laughs> and of course he wouldn't give. Of course he had his own trauma to deal with, but he would you know lucretia wanted a child and she clearly hadn't had one after what five years of marriage which would have been i would feel extreme for the time
1: (laughs) that was i also think there's something also included not this is an exclusionary but there's something very special about being in combat with someone else and the feeling that you know is brought up Mm -hmm. in those intense like really unshareable moments that you know is definitely a play yeah all right let's that's uh let's do it Um... (laughs) All right, so uh, yeah, Dylan, if you've got a last line, uh, you sure. know, cue up. But
0: uh... you told me that that I should come up with one, so I did. <laughs> Good <laughs> job. Taking my cue from um, just the other one. It's not a single line.
2: That's all right. Don't <laughs> so, worry.
0: So, well, as we talked about earlier, there's a kind of demandingness of the book, and I, I admit that there are times where I was just utterly sucked in and couldn't put it down in other times where I was flogging myself (laughs) just to keep moving. But this is one of those times where it's really not about the plot, but more about the kind of just vivid description that she has to me and and about place. So this is uh, when Peter is back at his hotel and and she had gotten the letter. We had, we had already mentioned this and he, you know, was upset about this. he's annoyed about it and then he has this little aside about hotels these hotels are not consoling places far from it any number of people had hung up their hats on those pegs even the flies if you thought of it had settled on other people's noses as for the cleanliness which hit him in the face it wasn't cleanliness so much as bareness frigidity a thing that had to be some arid matron made her rounds at dawn sniffing peering causing blue-nosed maids to scour for all the world as if the next visitor were a joint of meat to be served on a perfectly clean platter, for sleep one bed, for sitting in one armchair, for cleaning one's teeth and shaving one's chin, one tumbler, one looking glass. Books, letters, dressing gowns slipped about in the impersonality of the horsehair like incongruous impertinences. And it was Clarissa's letter that made him see all this. Heavenly to see you, You, mu- she must say so. He folded the paper, pushed it away. Nothing would induce him to read it again. Wow.
2: Cool. All right. Well, I think I'm having the same problem Nathan is, because I've got a million lines, a million, and it's been very hard to like figure out which ones. One line, so I'm going to give a couple lines here and there, and then I'll read this paragraph. One of my lines I love that I saw was, to love makes one solitary, she thought. That's just a line, and I liked it very much. And there are a bunch of other little lines here that I'd love to grab, but i that was the only one I wrote down. Anyway, now, I'm not quite sure where we are. I think this is toward the end, and somebody may have already read part of this, but I'm going to read it again. She had once thrown a shilling into the serpentine, never anything more, but he had flung it away. They went on living. She would have to go back. The rooms were still crowded. People kept coming on, kept on coming. They, all day, they had been thinking of Burton or of Peter, of Sally. They would grow old. A thing there was that mattered. A thing wreathed about with chatter, defaced, obscured in her own life. Let drop every day in corruption, lies, chatter. This he had preserved. Death was defiance. Death was an attempt to communicate people feeling the impossibility of reaching the center which mystically evaded them. Closeness drew apart. Rapture faded. One was alone. There was an embrace in death. But this young man who had killed himself had he plunged holding his treasure. If it were now to die, torn now to be most happy she had said to herself once, coming down in white, or there were the poets and thinkers. Suppose he, had, suppose he had had that passion and had gone to Sir William Bradshaw, a great doctor, yet to her obscurely evil, without sex or lust, extremely polite to women, but capable of some indescribable outrage, forcing your soul that, that was it." If this young man had gone to him and Sir William had impressed him like that with his power, might he not have said, indeed, she felt it now, life is made intolerable. They make life intolerable, men like that. God, I love her writing. I'm sorry. So uh,
1: there's two things I'd like to, this just goes back between septimus and uh dalloway i just want to read this one thing quickly let me just do a couple so this is dalloway this is eight uh this is what i was trying to get to earlier shakespeare loathed humanity the putting on of clothes the getting of children the sordidity of the mouth and the belly this was now revealed to septimus the message hidden in the beauty of words the secret signal which one generation passes under disguise to the next is loathing hatred despair dante the same Acialist the same. Love between man and woman was, was repulsive to Shakespeare. The business of copulation was filth to him before the end. And one cannot bring children into a world like this. One cannot perpetuate suffering or increase the breed of these lustful animals who have no lasting emotions, but only whims and vanities, eddying them now this way, now that. For the truth is, let her ignore it. That human beings have neither kindness, nor faith, nor charity beyond what serves to increase the pleasure of the moment. They hunt in packs. Their packs scour the desert and vanish, screaming into the wilderness. They desert the fallen. They are plastered over with grimaces. A bit more, but yeah. uh, I think what's really striking about that, striking, uh, sorry, everybody says striking now. Um, (laughs) Everybody's being struck by stuff. They desert the fallen. I think that is crucial to uh, Septimus. I mean, feeling like Evans was left, even though dead, you know, back there. But there was this other thing I tried to find the, of um, Dalloway. She was talking about the monster. Oh, here it is. Uh, this is on 12. It rasped her to have stirring about in her this brutal monster, to hear twigs cracking and feel hooves planted down in the depths of that leafy encumbered forest, the soul never to be content quite or quite secure for at any moment, the brute would be stirring this hatred, which especially since her illness, which we didn't talk about, and I'm not sure what her illness was, had power to make her feel scraped, hurt in her spine, gave her physical pain and made all pleasure and beauty and friendship and being well and being loved and making her home delightful rock quiver and bend as if indeed there were a monster grubbing at the roots as if the whole panoply of content were nothing but self-love this hatred, nonsense, nonsense. She cried to herself, pushing through the doors of Mulberry's the florists, obviously the authorial, voice and world is dealing with this you know despair and i think that's crucial
2: i think it's really important to remember the last line the that of the story for there she was so i think that says a lot about clarissa
3: there's an authenticity to the conscious thoughts that she puts in her characters that seems so natural in a way not towards them you know, forcing their thoughts into some overarching message that she's trying to force through. It, 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 it's wonderful in that sense. I think we've said all my favorite lines. I, I got a my I wrote down a line that I thought was the funniest of the book, and this is to do with Septimus and when he was still studying under his tutor, Miss Pole, a uh, Shakespeare tutor, I believe, and it says, he thought her beautiful believed her impeccably wise, dreamed of her, wrote poems to her, which, ignoring the subject, she corrected in red ink.
0: I
1: remember that.
0: (laughs) I love that.
3: (laughs) I love the idea of that.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. All right. Well, um does anyone have any uh, recommendations of other things out there that you uh that you like or You know, uh,
2: I actually have a question. Okay. I am reading and maybe I don't know. I'm reading the um the Unconsoled by Ishiguro. I'm going nuts reading all of his stuff now. And be careful. Be careful. Oh, he's just a sad he just puts you into a sad place. You know, he didn't so much, I didn't see the movie of what was the movie that Never Let, that let go. Know. Yeah. Never let me, I didn't see that movie, although Cesaro, you said it was, it's depressing, right? Yeah,
3: it's sad. I mean, I I, I saw the movie before I read the book, though, so that's my relation to it.
2: Oh, I see, I see. Yeah, no, I didn't get it. I wasn't sad from the book, although it is sad. Oh, wow, yeah,
1: no, yeah, it was, yeah.
2: It was very sad, but for some reason it didn't strike me that way. It, it just, I, it made me very. She grew centered, <laughs> so I did read a bunch mm-hmm. of other of his books, like Dawn of the Remains of the Day, which just phenomenally wonderful. But I've, I've started reading this book, The Unconsoled. Has anybody? Have you read it? Anybody? No. Oh my no. God, it's just so incredibly frustrating. In a way, it kind of brings up this what Virginia Wolf does, but nowhere near as good as Virginia Wolf does it. He'll be going along, and then you know suddenly the character the main character is going somewhere else in other words the initial plot is that it's he's going to a say but then he suddenly goes off to b then he goes off to c then he goes off to x then he goes up it goes it's shocking and i looked it up and people were people like on goodreads were saying that this book is particularly frustrating and when it initially came out in like i don't know in the 90s i think or eight, i don't know 90s yeah the reviews were not good and that it was considered not one of his better books, but now they're saying it's actually one of the best books he's ever written, or best stories he's ever written. And I just wanted to know if anybody else had read it because the fr- I get so frustrated. It's so fr- it's like that frustratingness. Like I'm not reading this right now. I'm putting it down because it's just so. Uh, but you know, you can't. I can't not finish it.
0: <laughs> I've never read A Sugar
2: Oh, you should! You should definitely read uh, "Remains of the Day" at the at the very least. But we did a discussion on "Never Let Me Go," which we're going to be posting soon. So, cool. But, uh, anyway, I highly recommend it. I'm reading. I'm reading a biography of Leonardo da Vinci. Is that the one that just came out by Isaacson? How is it? Because I wanted to read that.
0: I'm enjoying it. The book is incredibly heavy. It, ah. All the paper is like uh, art house paper, even though you know there are a lot ah. of pictures. It, but the book weighs itself. I don't know, like three pounds or four pounds.
2: <laughs> oh my god! <laughs>
0: it's kind of strange. So, but uh, it's good. It's not hard reading, but it's right. it's interesting. And Isaacson's doing a good job of. I'm learning about art as well as about da Vinci and a lot more about sort of how the mechanics of his career worked, which is pretty interesting as well.
2: Um, he did He did Steve Jobs, right? He did Steve Jobs and Einstein. Einstein. Yeah, I read I read Einstein, but did you read the Steve Jobs one? No, this is the first Isaacson book ever. Oh, he's wonderful. I wonder how old he is and how much more he'll write.
0: <laughs> thanks for inviting me on, you guys.
2: Oh, this it. has been wonderful. Oh, just wonderful. I really yeah, like it. Thanks for coming on, Dylan. It was, it was a good time.
3: Yeah. What are you guys working
2: yeah, on next?
0: By the way, we are recording on ourselves on James William James, James. on psychology. What Which book? Doing? I think it's the shorter psychology. Like he has like a multi-volume one, and we're reading the the one he wrote, but it's sort of a, a more summary one. I'm trying to remember. Just- Obviously, I've started it. Right? <laughs> yeah. <clearly. laughs> You're an expert.
3: Yeah. Really? yeah. looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, I think all I've read by him is uh, Thackeray's of uh, religious faith or. His book on religion, anyways.
2: Yeah, Are you we, reading any? Go ahead.
0: Uh, we we just been doing a lot of sort of psychology related stuff lately. So why uh, we go through these f- these fits, and you know, Wes is particularly interested in in psycho- psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis, and that kind of thing. So uh, we've been meaning to. I was do actually things.
3: wondering why you didn't have why you didn't have more like uh, Freud episodes or things to do with psychoanalysis with uh, with that
0: angle. Well. Uh,
3: is that just on a shared interest, or
0: it is. Um, I, I think uh, it feels like we've had <laughs> 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 we have more. Maybe because Lacan left such a scar for me. That <laughs> <laughs> that, that, uh, uh. I think rather than attacking, you know, grabbing on Freud directly, um, we what we've been doing is having things that are more um, uh, about. psychology so it's psychoanalysis, so like vertigo west really wanted to do vertigo and um from a psychoanalytic perspective and then we had dr drew on and then the um uh recently the uh, milgram stuff Mm uh prisons and our our, you know nature versus nurture types of things and we just recorded on nietzsche nietzsche's last book twilight of the idols which you always end up talking about psychology because he's of course the greatest psychologist that ever lived
2: ever lived <laughs> so wow.
3: i'm gonna write an essay on Nietzsche right now and it's not going well <laughs>
0: which book are you writing on
3: uh it's on jeez it's not genealogy of morals it's uh, beyond good and evil and his idea it's it's for a class i'm taking on um on mind and Nietzsche's concession of mind mm, and funny. And it's supposed to be through his, his opinion as expressed in Beyond Good and Evil. Yep.
0: Oh, so, you, so you can't rely on the tension between the Dionysian and the Apollinian as part of our psychology? Well, I, <laughs> I could get deeper into that thing,
3: but I, I always have a problem with these essays that I always try to read way above, you know, way overboard than what I should be focusing on. Like the professor explicitly said, you should just focus on the reading
0: assigned. <laughs> uh, good luck. Yeah.
2: Uh, <laughs> Thank with that, no. Nathan, are you there
1: yeah i'm here oh okay what um, are you reading i'm just listening oh um i i, I want to crack don delilo's underworld oh ooh. interesting I, I haven't started it yet but i picked it up because there was oh uh, uh, his name's not coming easily um harold bloom the mm-hmm. the literary critic yeah he right. said that was one of the greats so oh cool I thought you had read that already. No, I've um, I've done three other Delilos, um, and I can't remember exactly. (laughs) Daniel always has to corral me in on this one. Um, But there was one where it was a psycho uh, was the basis of it, um, and then white noise. Maybe that was white noise. Um, but anyway, no, and underworld's beefy. I mean, it's something it's, it's a really big book. So, um, I think it's going to be something like a gravity's rainbow. You know, I, I tried reading that twice and I, I couldn't get past a hundred pages. So, um, that's, it's another one of those speaking that, of the, you
3: know, speaking of gravity, I'm, I'm reading a lot of, um, academic papers, which is probably the least exciting thing you could be reading, but, uh...